0: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. In a remote corner on the west coast of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, known as Heskiat Bay, sits a once-abandoned, run-down property. An old ramshackle house, a dilapidated garden, an outhouse with three walls and a front yard that is a tetanus nightmare and a scavenger's dream. This is the property that once belonged to Ada, Annie, Jordan, though the woman has had many names throughout her life. Today, she is famously known as Cougar Annie, and now occupies a place in British Columbia lore as a hermit, a murderer, a hunter, a kindly old lady, a curmudgeonly hoarder, and a fearsome wild woman of the West Coast. She exists at a crossroads of myth legend, fact, fiction, and is an embodiment of the pioneer spirit that defines this country. This is Season 5, Episode 9, Cougar Annie, The Wild Woman of Vancouver Island. This week... I am going to recommend a work of fiction. Broken Ground by Jack Hodgins. This is a story of Canadian veterans of the Great War being granted parcels of land in the Comox Valley on Vancouver Island and their efforts to turn it into a home. This novel captures the rough pioneer spirit of settling in the remote areas of Vancouver Island in the early 20th century and would give any reader a sense of the challenges that many faced, including Annie, as they tried to carve communities out of a rugged and isolated environment. Ada Annie was born in Sacramento, California in 1888 to George and Margaret Jordan, who had emigrated from Hastings in England. Annie always claimed that her family descended from old English aristocracy, though the records of her immediate family never bore this out. Her father, George, lived a rather nomadic existence, traveling throughout North America before returning to England where he met and married Margaret. The pair then moved to California, where Annie was born. George established himself there as a fruit farmer in the Sacramento area, though his farm was destroyed in an earthquake, triggering George's nomadic tendencies. And he and the family moved to South Africa in 1897. Now Annie claims her father eventually joined the British Army as a royal engineer when the Boer War broke out in 1898, though once again, no records exist of this claim. We do, however, know George had a business importing and exporting furniture. At some point, however, George once again decided to pack up shop and move his family. This time back to North America, in fact, to Lloydminster, Alberta, where he started cattle ranching. Though, bad luck seemed to continually follow George when a prairie fire destroyed his ranch and much of his herd. After this disaster, George and the family moved to Winnipeg, Manitoba, where he trained as a veterinary surgeon. Finally, George moved the family to Vancouver, where he opened his own veterinary clinic on Seymour Street. Now, by this point, Annie was a teenager. And Annie's life during this nomadic period was a difficult one. Her relationship with her father was also quite difficult. You see, George was a rather enigmatic character. He was known to punish Annie severely for minor infractions. He emphasized raising Annie as a boy, even preventing her from wearing women's clothes for the first decade of her life. He did, however, teach her some skills. For instance, during their time in South Africa, he taught her how to shoot, which she apparently became quite proficient at. When they moved back to Canada, he taught her how to trap, which she also became fairly proficient in. George, frankly, forced her to prove herself like any young man might have to, from physical labor to fighting. Yet, at the same time, he also emphasized schooling and reading, Annie was thus a curious blend of a tough child who could handle herself in the wilds while also being fairly well-spoken, well-read, and even showing signs of being a fairly strong writer. While George may not have been loving... He certainly raised his daughter into an independent, self-sufficient woman, able to take care of herself in the wilds of North America, comfortable being alone, but also educated enough to thrive in an urban environment. Annie was quite the contradiction when she settled in Vancouver as a young woman. And it was here where she met Scottish-born William Ray Arthur of a highly respectable Scottish family from Glasgow. Willie was a charmer, had a great sense of humor, was well-liked by most people around him, and for all indications was a kind man when he and Annie first met. No records indicate what their early courtship was like, but in 1909 the two were married. This would be the first of four husbands for Cougar Annie. Annie and William purchased a house located in the emerging neighborhood of West Broadway, and in 1910, her and William welcomed their firstborn, a son named George. Two years later, another son named Frank was born, and 19 months after that, a daughter was born named Margaret. By 1913, the same year Margaret was born, the family seemed like it was doing quite well. It had a fairly large house, from which Annie ran a pet business, selling pets literally from her front door to people from the neighborhood. Her house teamed with children, supported by a host of male Chinese servants, and a constant parade of customers coming to buy her high-end animals. The couple soon became part of Vancouver High Society, attending all the elite social events within the growing community. William, or Willie as he was called by those close to him, struggled in this increasingly opulent life. He was unable to hold down jobs for any serious length of time and eventually became fond of the bottle and more increasingly opium, which was fairly accessible and unregulated in Vancouver's emerging Chinatown. Annie, in fact, always blamed her servants for introducing and keeping him hooked on the drug. Eventually, Willie was in the midst of a full-blown addiction. Money began disappearing from the house, and soon valuables and jewelry went missing. It was at this point that Annie, along with her father, were forced to intervene. A move away from temptation was needed. And that move occurred sometime in 1915, when Annie packed up her dope-addled husband, her three kids, and they moved to an isolated rural region in Heskiat Bay, known as Boat Basin, on the west coast of Vancouver Island. Despite her father's objection at the rather radical change of scenery, and the shock within Vancouver High Society, it was in Boat Basin, that Annie would spend the rest of her life. Now, Heskiat Bay had been home to the Heskiat First Nations for centuries, though no more than 500 people lived there ever at any one time. It was effectively a place for a winter village, with other seasonal villages dotting up and down the Vancouver Island coast. The first recorded sightings of the Haskiette people came from Spanish Captain Juan Perez in 1774, who noted the scarcity of people within the area. Nothing really changed in the next hundred odd years. Simply put, there wasn't much in Boat Basin. There was a small cabin belonging to an aged forester named Old Man Gibson, There was one other settler family, known as the Wheelers. There was a Catholic mission, which had been in the area since 1875. There were two different First Nation reserves belonging to the Hesquiat people, numbering roughly 200 people in total. And there were wide tracts of seemingly dense forested land available for settlement only for people of European descent. It was this isolated spot on the very western shores of Canada that Annie and her family would now call home. The land was given to Annie's family based on the rules of preemption, a common form of land grant for settlers in British Columbia. Effectively, settlers were given the land for quote-unquote free, granted that they would cultivate it, settle it permanently, and then improve it in the surrounding vicinity. This was a way by which the government promoted the establishment of functioning farming communities throughout remote areas of the province. The problem was the land. Like most of the land in the Heskiat region, it was poor farming quality. Despite this... In the early 20th century, the west coast of Vancouver Island promised infinite possibilities for people willing to live in relative isolation and endure back-breaking work. Up and down the west coast, Vancouver Island saw farming communities spring up in the early 20th century only to be abandoned within 10 to 20 years as the soil proved near impossible to cultivate. The infinite Possibilities proved to be quite finite. Nonetheless, Annie remained and survived. Folks, I want to take a second before we continue to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time. Well, Patreon allows you to set up regular, preset donations. So if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page and on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a comment, We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy, and thank you to everyone who has donated. We could not keep doing this without your support. Now back to the regularly scheduled program. The early years in Boat Basin were tough for the family. We're talking about a well-to-do, urban socialite family that now had to revert to roughing it in the bush just to survive. And even with Annie's bush skills, she openly admitted how tough these early years were. Her husband by this time was suffering from ill health, and Annie found herself having to balance raising kids, clearing the land, and navigating the day-to-day rigors of life in the wilderness. She had become a true pioneer and was the key to her entire family's survival. Incredibly. Through all this, between 1915 and 1931, she bore eight more children. Eight more. All of these were born in Boat Basin. The ones that survived, five in all, were Isabel, Rosina, Helen, Thomas, and Lawrence. Three others sadly died in childbirth. The idea of having children in such a remote location is incredible to our modern sensibilities. When Annie was in labor, the local Catholic priest and an indigenous midwife had to paddle over from their respective homes to aid in the childbirth. But with an army of children, Annie found creative ways to ensure they stayed safe while she performed the necessary labor on the land. She would, for instance, tie the babies to a high chair, put the younger ones in a large, fenced-in playpen, and then lock the older ones in the house while she went out to take care of whatever needed taking care of. Once each kid was old enough to help out, they were put to work. Perhaps most demanding was clear-cutting. It would take two people all day to cut down one of the large cedars or fir trees that covered Annie's land. After the tree had been felled, it had to be cut up into firewood. And then came the most difficult part, the removal of the stump from the earth. This was back-breaking and at times near impossible work. It was common for Annie to hire men from the local reserve to perform this part of the clear-cutting process. Though it would take a long while, Annie was only ever able to clear seven acres of her near 120. What is rather a strange testament to the unequal laws at the time is even though Annie had directed and participated in most of the clearing of the land that was granted to the family, everything was in her husband's name. Nonetheless, it was Annie who had carved out a piece of home for her family, including an ever-growing garden that soon became the wonder of the region. The land was finally formally granted to the Ray Arthur family in 1923. Yet, along with the report granting land ownership, came a more damning report, that of child neglect. You see, by this point, rumors had spread up and down the coast of a wild woman, her feeble husband, and her animal-like children, all living in a state of near destitution and savagery. None of the children had received any schooling, and even fishermen were said to avoid Boat Basin for fear of Annie's brood. The children were known to go barefoot, eschew hygiene, and reports came out that sometimes they weren't even being fed appropriate meals. In fact, interviews with two of the younger children later in life revealed that they would go days eating only porridge. One story relates that a local First Nations man found Annie with a baby on her hip and a toddler at her side, attempting to hunt wild cattle that roamed the island. The young man took pity on Annie and her children and brought them into his reserve to be fed. Access to medical care was obviously limited, Another story told of Annie having to carry her second youngest, who at the time was very sick, on her back while she hiked to the nearest medical post. This was an overnight journey, and Annie and her sickly child had to spend the night in a cave. In 1923, the government acted and her three eldest were taken away to a reform school back in Vancouver, while government agents began to keep an eye on the Ray Arthur family, heavily doubting that Annie could adequately care for the remaining children. Because of the isolation in Boat Basin, Annie rarely saw any of the children once they were removed. In order to avoid the same fate for her children still in Boat Basin, she began to take their education and their hygiene and their health far more seriously. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. By 1923, Annie and her husband had built themselves a much larger home, from which Annie ran a small convenience store. This store became particularly notorious for the poor quality of eggs Annie sold her customers as Annie preferred getting rid of the much older stock whenever possible, even if that older stock was really, really old. Though it also became well known, however, for fresh produce, which came from the massive garden she had built and maintained since her arrival, Almost as popular as the produce, in fact, probably a bit more popular, was her vanilla and lemon extract, which was effectively vanilla and lemon alcohol, popular for many in Heskiat in need of an aromatic buzz. Most of the goods she sold in the store, both for personal use and for private use, came from Victoria via the steamer Prince Makina, which regularly sailed from Victoria to Heskiat. When the Makina ceased its service run in the early 1950s, Annie had to rely more and more on friends as well as her adult children to regularly bring in supplies. Annie's store was unusual in that there were no set prices. She would charge people depending on how she felt about them. It was well known, for instance, that newcomers would often get the best deals— while Annie frequently overcharged her indigenous customers. Annie seemed to have had a personal dislike for her First Nation neighbors, even though she relied on them for her own survival. This was easily a reflection of the contradictory prejudices held by people of European descent during this period. In 1936... Annie was able to convince local bureaucrats to allow her to set up a post office in Boat Basin. She was named Postmaster for the small community, at this time numbering no more than 60 people, and turned one of the rooms in her house, already containing a convenience store, mind you, into a post office. Now, this was not done out of a deep-seated sense of altruism and love of community, but because the Postmaster could earn a monthly salary from the government. This also allowed Annie to run a successful flower seed business from her home, which was effectively a mail-order seed business. Annie herself could not physically deliver the mail to the community, so she hired a local First Nations man to do so. He worked as the postman for the region for nearly four decades. When Annie grew too old to act as postmaster, she passed it to her son Tommy, who took over in 1970. He was acting postmaster until he too left Boat Basin in the mid-1980s, at which point the post office was officially closed down. Now the same year that Annie opened her post office, that's 1936, tragedy struck the family. Willie, Annie's first husband, who had continued to abuse alcohol for most of his life while in Boat Basin, died. Accidental drowning was the official cause. He had fallen out of his boat at some point during the evening, and his body was found shortly thereafter. Willie was thus buried in a plot in Annie's growing garden. After the death of their father, most of the children began to leave. By the 1940s, all except Tommy and the youngest, Lawrence, were gone. Annie, seeing her children departing as quickly as they possibly could, did not want to be alone. In fact, she was so adamant about not being alone, she actually advertised for a new husband in a number of regional, national, and even international newspapers. Her advertisement read, B.C. Widow with Nursery and Orchard Wishes Partner, widower preferred, object, matrimony. By 1938, Annie's first applicant arrived, though she kicked him out shortly after. And in 1939, her second one arrived. This man lasted as long as the first. So she was thus zero for two, when in 1940, George Campbell, a 60-year-old Scotsman, Annie was 51 by this time, responded to the ad. The two struck up a relationship via correspondence, and eventually Annie invited him to Boat Basin. The story has it that the two were married the evening of the day he arrived. While there is no documentary evidence, there is ample oral testimony to support the fact that George Campbell was a brutal and violent man. It was commonly understood throughout Boat Basin that George would often beat and terrorize Annie and any of her children that came to visit. But in 1944, George Campbell suddenly died. Supposedly, he died cleaning his gun. Annie's story of George's death has been told in different ways over the years, but it always came back to him shooting himself. By the time the doctor had arrived on the scene, George had been dead for hours. No investigation followed. Decades later, though, Annie openly admitted that she in fact killed George during one of his rages. The story goes that George went to attack her, and she shot him in the leg, severing an artery. To this day, there is no proof, though many who knew Annie admit that it would not be out of her character to shoot anyone who crossed her one too many times. Incredibly, Annie was not going to stay single for long. Even during her marriage to George, she had been in frequent contact with numerous other suitors who had seen her advertisement in the newspaper. One of these was Esau Arnold from Saskatchewan. Within two months of George's death murder accident Esau received a letter from Annie inviting him out. He arrived in 1945. They married in 1947. The same year that Annie married her third husband, tragedy struck again when her youngest child, Lawrence, at the time 19 years of age, died when he drowned while canoeing in rough weather. And while this is generally accepted as fact, there is a far more scandalous tale that exists in Boat Basin. It was said Lawrence was courting a young woman in a nearby Heskiat community. Another young man was supposedly jealous of Lawrence's relationship, and it was said this young man pulled the drainage plug on Lawrence's canoe, causing it to sink while Lawrence rowed home. Rather fitting, however is that this young man, supposedly responsible for Lawrence's death, was later killed and eaten by a cougar. In a further ironic twist, it was said that Annie hunted and killed this very cougar, and when she cut it open, there were traces of fabric and buttons from that young man's coat. Now by this point, Tommy had moved off the property, and it was now just Annie and Esau. However... Even that wouldn't last long. In 1954, a tree collapsed onto Esau's leg. Due to the lack of immediate medical help, gangrene set in, and by the time Esau arrived at a hospital, his leg was beyond saving. As his body struggled to heal, Esau had a heart attack and died. At the start of 1955, Annie was 60 years of age, once again a widower, and was all alone on her property. Thus, in March 1955, a familiar advertisement went out to newspapers across Canada. B.C. Widow with nursery and orchard wishes partner, widower around 60 preferred, object matrimony. Several different men answered the ad over the next few years with Annie finally choosing one and thus marrying her fourth husband in 1961, a man named George Lawson. Lawson was a bad husband. He drank hard. he hit Annie, he stole from her, he was convinced she was rich, so constantly wanted money from her. Eventually, Annie chased him off at gunpoint. By 1967, Annie entertained another man, Robert Culver, whom had enjoyed a long-time correspondence with Annie. But the isolation and difficult living of the region took a toll on Robert, and he left in 1972. So before we continue, let's get to the root of the nickname Cougar Annie. You see, to protect her garden her goats, her chickens, etc., Annie decided to be proactive. Cougars were the big problem, especially to her goats. Annie boasts that she killed over 60 cougars in her life and nearly 80 black bears, though her boasts increased in number every year she got older. In fact, prior to World War II, there even used to be a bounty for cougars as they were considered a noxious predator. Plus, their pelts continued to fetch a price well into the post-war period. Normally, hunters would use trained dogs to hunt cougars. Annie simply used her goats as bait. She would tie them up near an open-jawed bear trap and quietly wait for the cougar to approach before shooting it. She placed these brutal open-jawed traps all throughout her property, and visitors had to always be aware. One wrong step, and one's leg could be crushed. Luckily, she put up signs. Annie was also a crack shot, which came in handy when she was twice attacked by cougars. Even into her older age, when she was half-blind, she continued to trap animals and sell their furs. By the 1970s, Annie and her property were truly isolated in Boat Basin. Very few people remained even remotely close to her location. She relied heavily on her son Tommy, who lived nearby. A logging road came through in 1974, and while Annie at first was known to chase construction workers away from her property with her shotgun, she eventually warmed to the presence of people in the isolated basin. Eventually, most workers called her granny at her own request. By 1980, Annie was 92. She was blind. She was drinking rainwater collected from buckets on the roof. She had to tie a string from her house to the outhouse in order to find her way to the only toilet on the property, She was becoming more and more housebound and refusing to leave her property. Locals from up and down the coast all soon took to visiting her, bringing supplies, helping around the property, trying to convince her to finally give up living in such an isolationist way. Finally, she relented. And in 1983, Cougar Annie was escorted away from Boat Basin to live her remaining years in Port Alberni. She died in 1985, a few weeks before her 97th birthday. Now, Cougar Annie has since become a legend on Vancouver Island. Frank Harper wrote a play called Cougar Annie, which debuted in Tofino in 1996. She is still spoken about today in various communities with reverence and awe. Today her garden and the remains of her buildings have been converted into a rustic bunkhouse for intrepid tourists hiking in Heskiat Bay. This is fitting, for Annie embodied the pioneer spirit required to traverse and survive the wild, rugged terrain that characterizes the Pacific Northwest. Annie gave up her comfortable urban lifestyle for a far more dangerous, treacherous one in Boat Basin, and yet survived well into her 90s. While not a person who necessarily played a role in nation-changing historical events or came to dominate a period or a movement, she was one of those individuals who carved their own space and place as a nonconformist in a world dominated by patriarchy and conformity. She embodied a rare, unflinching spirit that today still captures the imagination of those who seek adventure in the wilds of the Pacific Northwest. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder... You can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, CoolCanadianHistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at B-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool.